At a very young age, we tell our kids um, by not telling them anything or by using silly names for vaginas and vulvas or by not giving them comprehensive, medically accurate sex education. We tell them that that part of their down there is shameful. Don't ever talk about it. So it becomes this mysterious black hole. And when you don't teach young people about their body parts or about how to keep themselves safe, they're going to figure it out in a different way. So nowadays, that means going online and seeking out information. And it's really hard to know what's accurate and what's not. More and more, you can find doctors sharing their expertise on social media, whether that's answering questions on an Instagram Live or responding to health misinformation on TikTok. On this episode of the Women's Health Cast, I was thrilled to talk with OBGYN physician, author, and social media star, Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, about what brought her to the social media space, why she thinks sexual and reproductive health misinformation flourishes online, and how we can critically evaluate health information we see on social media. When she's not working as an OBGYN in Oregon, Dr. Lincoln busts reproductive health myths for her millions of followers. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln and on Twitter at Dr. Jen Lincoln. Links to her social media handles are in our show notes. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and you're listening to the Women's Health Cast. I am so excited to be joined today on the Women's Health Cast by Dr. Jennifer Lincoln, an OBGYN physician in Oregon with 109,000 Instagram followers, 2.6 million TikTok followers, and the author of Let's Talk About Down There, a shame-free FAQ of sexual and reproductive health questions. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Jacqueline. I'm so excited. I have to say this is this is very exciting for me, both professionally, because I think our listeners will benefit so much from your expertise and your insights. But then also personally, I have been a huge fan of yours for years. I am thrilled to get to spend this time talking with you. Um, You know, I was preparing, working up for this interview and thinking like, I really want to hear what Dr. Lincoln has to say about social media and health misinformation, especially in the realm of like sexual and reproductive health. Um, So I can't wait to kind of dive into that with you. But uh, before we start into that, can you tell me a little bit about your day job? Um, what kind of care do you provide as a physician? What does that look like? Yeah, like it's, I feel like it's like 70% my night job and then 30% my day job. I work as an OB hospitalist, um, which I love. But, you know, it's, it's a lot of night shifts, which is, you know, sometimes as you get older, you're thinking, how much longer can I, can I be a creature of the night? But I love it. Um, and yes, yeah, so I work as an OB hospitalist, um, caring for a pregnant and postpartum pe- pregnant people. And it's super fun. I'm at um, a hospital in Oregon that does the most births in the state of Oregon and a lot of high risk stuff, which I love. We get to work very closely with our perinatologists, with the other practices who deliver at our hospital. We also work really closely with a few birth centers to help patients transfer transfer from home or from a birth center to transition into the hospital. And, um, yeah, it's it's never the same day or the same night twice, but it's super fun. My colleagues are all these amazing women. We are all very supportive. We'll work really hard to make sure that we have like actual work-life balance, which I feel like is this pretend concept in medicine. And it's just this great collaborative group of people, even across other practices, we're always helping each other. And um, my nurses are amazing. So yeah, I love it. And and to be able to say that like during a pandemic, um, I feel like it's probably pretty good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like that work-life balance or that actual sort of 
balance between those two sections must be especially important for you because of all of the health communications that you do kind of for free in your own time online. Um, you know, I have, I mentioned I've been a follower of yours for quite a while. I know you started your Instagram account in 2019 and joined TikTok after that. Um, I'm curious, like, what brought you to that social media space as a health professional? And then also, where can people find you if they want to spend some time learning from you? Well, thanks for following along, Jacqueline. That's super. Thanks for being there, um, for being one of the originals. <laughs> but you're right. I started in 2019 and it was on Instagram. And it was really because I, as a physician mother, I was just feeling a little isolated. It's a, it's a weird spot to be in. It can be hard to connect with people outside of medicine or, you know, your schedules are so crazy. It can be hard to explain to people who aren't in medicine, kind of what your life is like. And um, yeah, so I just started following people from my personal account and I saw how they were really mixing the two together, educating and connecting. And it really started like that. And I jumped onto Instagram and I made my first post and then I didn't post again for another month because I was so terrified. <laughs> It's like, oh no, people are going to find me. And then this is going to be, you know, so embarrassing. And they're going to make fun of me as a physician. What do you, you know, who do you think you are? And, uh, and it kind of happened like that. We're a nurse on labor and delivery, you know, and I still remember, I remember where I was standing at the nurse's station and she's like, Dr. Lincoln, I found you on Instagram. And then all the other nurses were like, you know, I thought, here we go. This is it. I'm, I'm done. Like, they're just going to make fun of me and it's over. And really the opposite happened where they were so supportive. Um, it was really the nurses first who sort of like knew and really um, gave me that feedback of like, this is so great that you're educating. I'm showing this to my daughter or I, you know, I never thought of it that way. And it just sort of took off from there. And then it was TikTok, which I desperately tried to avoid because I was like, there is no reason physicians should be on TikTok. And this was pre-pandemic, <laughs> very different world. And then a few of my online, you know, Instagram, Dr. Mom, contacts were like, no, Jen, you need to be there. This is like your demographic. And I made a TikTok and got like a million views and I realized that they were absolutely right. And so there is a place. And I think this is what public health is, right? It's figuring out where your audience is and delivering the message in a way that they understand. And then came YouTube and then my book. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to follow along, it's basically at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln on all of those and a little bit on Twitter, but I kind of hate Twitter for many reasons. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where when I'm my quote unquote days off, I'm doing stuff like this and I love it because I love educating and I love getting to connect in an, and use my doctor brain in a different way. Um, but it sometimes it, it's a bit hard to separate the two or to feel like there's enough time, but it's, I think a good problem to have because it means that people are, um, people are seeing that we can educate online and on social media and it's legit. And I feel like the medical community is starting to get that a bit more, which is nice because we need to, we need to go to where our patients are, which is let's be real on their phones in front of their screens, just like we are all day. <laughs> I also, you know, I spend a lot of time online, like at many millennials, I assume. And then like also people who do computer jobs, it's just always in front of me. Um, and I notice a ton of health, I'll call it information, but information might be a stretch. Um, that seems, you know, pretty suspect at best, right? Um, very questionable. And I feel like it is very valuable and important to have folks who you know, are professionals in this field, have a strong evidence base, and are like really strong communicators to break down what is accurate and what isn't. Um, why, why is it so important 
to you to spend your time doing this, creating evidence-based information to share about sexual and reproductive health specifically, though I know you definitely talk about other things too. Um, But why is it so important for you to share this info online? Yeah. Well, I will say the non-PC version of what you just said, there's a lot of garbage out there. Like, let's be real. There's so much trash and I feel like I'm just taking out the trash very frequently and then just more keeps piling up. And it's, it is so frustrating in our field, especially because, um, you know, we have the, the regular stuff, right? I could just talk about pregnancy and GYN conditions and that would be enough. But in the field of women's and reproductive health, there's just a ton of misinformation, whether it's related to birth control, sexuality, trans care, um, abortions. Like there's just so much politics and shame and purity culture mixed into what we do every day that it's just natural that this stuff sort of proliferates on social media because so much of this stuff is clickbaity or very controversial. Um, I am sure in other fields, every field has their, you know, every field has their thing. But I can guarantee you in the field of urology, there's not as much gotcha medicine. There's not as much, um, they're not telling you or your doctors, you know, don't know what they're doing or here's the all natural cure. And I I know there is some of that, but not to the degree in our field. And it's really because um, it's, there's multiple reasons, um, I think. And really at the end of the day, what bothers me is that so many people who are profiting off of vaginal shame or this idea that they are somehow saving women. It's this, it's, it's actually very patriarchal. It's this idea that we need to be saved, that we can't advocate for ourselves, that, um, you know, that, that we in this healthcare space are trying to hurt women, which I know definitely comes from a history. Gynecology, its roots is based in taking advantage of women and, and, you know, a lot of racism, I hear it, but it doesn't mean that the answer is to then, profit and take advantage of people in a different way when it comes to supplements and cleanses and fear-based targeted posts. I mean, every day I get sent a post where they're like, this can't be right. Right. You know, that birth control will call, you know, will lead to infertility or, um, so many things and, and especially around COVID and fertility and periods. Um, so yeah, so I feel like a good part of my day is trying to not only counteract this, but you're never, it's like whack-a-mole once you get one thing down, you know, something else pops up. So my goal is to try to help my followers understand, well, here's how you too can figure this out on your own. What's legit. Who's not an expert. Here's how you report it. Here's how you go about getting rid of misinformation. Um, and I really, I really hope that organizations like the American board of obstetrics and gynecology, when they see their own physicians, putting this stuff out, that they step up and they, they respond and they take people to task who tout themselves as board certified OBGYNs. And they're putting out the same misinformation. We need to hold ourselves accountable, but yeah, it it feels like whack-a-mole and it's not fun because you don't get a prize at the end of the day. (laughs) Just get more, just more moles. Yeah. Just more moles. (laughs) I am actually really, I'm very glad you also mentioned like this, this extra growth of mythology in your, your professional arena in particular. Cause I feel, I feel that so much. Um, and I wanted to ask if you have any guesses or insights into like why in particular, uh, sexual and reproductive health and, um, like gynecologic health, why are these areas of, of healthcare so like rife for nonsense? What makes us special (laughs) that, that makes us unfortunately special, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is that it starts out that we, at a very young age, we tell our kids um, by not telling them anything or by using silly names for vaginas and vulvas 
or by not giving them comprehensive, medically accurate sex education. We tell them that that part of their down there is shameful. Don't ever talk about it. So it becomes this mysterious black hole. And when you don't teach young people about their body parts or about how to keep themselves safe, they're going to figure it out in a different way. So nowadays that means going online and seeking out information. And it's really hard to know what's accurate and what's not. And companies have realized this and they profit off of this. I mean, Vagisil and Summer's Eve, they realize that they can make a lot of money about making us feel dirty. And so they make products. Um, I mean, they had one commercial where they said the elephant in the room, you know, was they are basically saying the elephant in the room is that you stink and you don't know it and you need our products to wash your, your vagina, which is super fun. Um, and then Vagisil made a product called OMV, which they explicitly said they're trying to target younger audiences because they want to sell more products. So they redid everything. So they are, they are profiting off of this idea that we don't really know what's, what's okay. What's not that vaginas are supposed to smell like vaginas. And so they make all these products. And I think a lot of it too, is control for generations from, you know, since existence, um, usually men want to control women, meaning our sexuality, meaning you know, don't have sex before marriage or you'll die. And then once you have sex, your job is to be a sex kitten and have babies and et cetera, et cetera. And, and it, what's really, what really bothers me is now seeing other people who are not men with the same idea of control and the same idea of purity culture. And so, you know, when it comes to abortion, talking about abortion or about birth control, it's these sorts of people win when they confuse us, when they make it be an us versus them, when they make it be, a, they're not telling you how your body really works. Um, there's just a ton of shame. And it's because that's just how society functions is that women are supposed to feel ashamed for their bodies, unless they're using it specifically to pleasure men in the way that society says we should. So it's gross. It's just gross. <laughs> yeah. It's like this horrible intersection of tabooness that clearly benefits, uh, not us as individuals, but you know, there's a, a vested interest in keeping, right. keeping us from thinking too critically. About, yeah. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the possible harms of this misinformation space. Like when untested supplements or products are kind of allowed to openly market, when we have a, a knowledge gap personally about what is effective and safe and tested, um, what are some of the the possible harms for us as individuals and for like a bigger society yeah. So I'd say one of the biggest things I see is a delay to diagnosis and treatment because people will go, you know, we'll have an issue, let's say painful periods or no periods or something along those lines. And they will try these supplements, you know, these, they, they claim that they're going to treat your PMS or they're going to make your periods better. Um, or they help with fertility. I think that's one of the most disgusting ones because infertility is a disease and it affects one in eight people one in four physicians, interestingly. Um, and so to put products out there that really, they know that people who are suffering from this, they're desperate for help. And oftentimes will turn to these alternative measures because insurance might not cover treatment or because they just feel that they're, you know, they're, they're too ashamed. So they're just trying to, to figure this out on their own. And so what happens is they try these things. They're told ridiculous reasons for their issues, you know, yeast overgrowth and like toxic mold and hormonal imbalances. And um, so they are told to buy, you know, buy this book, buy this supplement, do this detox, do this program. And what happens is it doesn't work. And now you're a year or two down the line. And when you actually get to the right care that you need, you realize you've wasted all this time, you've wasted all this money and maybe a problem that could have been a bit more easily treatable. 
is now more difficult. And I see the effects of that in people who message me and say, I was taken advantage of by this naturopath because she said that she could give me these fluids and these nutrients and these detoxes and nothing worked. And I feel embarrassed that I fell for it. And I'm really angry. And I say, I'm angry for you. And I don't want you, there's no shame in falling for this junk science because it's meant to be fallen for. They position themselves as experts. I think of somebody like Jolene Brighton who wrote Beyond the Pill, which is a book that I read and 30% of it, like literally I counted the pages, 30% of it is her telling you to buy her supplements and do her programs. Um, And it's junk science, but people think that it's real because she's got a gorgeous website and she pivots herself right in that place of medicine, which is I will listen to you when they don't, which definitely we have a problem in medicine and definitely in gynecology, but the answer isn't to then lower the bar and sell you these ridiculous homeopathic treatments, naturopathic treatments that have not been proven. And I, and before anybody says, well, you don't care, like, because you don't prescribe it, you don't make money. I am all for things that have data because alternative medicine that works is just called medicine, you know, like look at honey for a cough or penicillin, like these things that was natural too. So it's just about the data. If there's data to support it, I will 100% get on board. Trust me. Um, until then, it's just it's just predatory junk science that they are making direct profits off of, right? Because they they get cash every time you buy their supplement. I write a prescription for a birth control pill. I don't make any money. I would make a lot more money if I didn't because you keep coming back to my office every month with horrible issues. But nobody thinks about that, and that um, and that bothers me. <laughs> you just mentioned something that I've also been think like thinking about puzzling about is like a lot of the, a lot of the misinformation or the junk science pops up around emotionally charged issues. Um, you think about something like, okay, so we know, you know, the average time to diagnosis for endometriosis can be something like 10 years. You know, that's a really long time to be suffering with something. And then, feel like you're repeatedly maybe having an experience of talking to a healthcare provider and not making traction, like not being listened to. And in reproductive gynecologic health, I feel like there are many things that kind of fall in that area, right? So they're very difficult for people and there might be some history of dismissal, you know, not not feeling listened to. I am really curious how you find that sweet spot, that balance of like, acknowledging that the harms that people are talking about are very, very real and bringing in the accuracy, the medically accurate information to the conversation. How do you navigate those sort of tough emotional spots? Yeah. Well, I think you're right. So much of this is that tough emotional stuff and it is tied to people. They have been dismissed and I have always known, right? We've all We've all had that doctor or we've all worked with that doctor or trained with that doctor who was, who was that jerk, right? Who blew people off or treated you like garbage. Um, but I will be honest, it wasn't until I really was on social media and getting, you know, getting comments, getting DMs, getting emails. And it, it bothers me how often this does happen. And it's not just myself. You know, I talk with a lot of other OBGYN I don't know, influencers, I guess you say, who, you know, we've had the same conversation. Like there are some really bad ones out there who are real and who are hurting our patients mentally, emotionally, physically by ignoring their symptoms. And it's real. And we acknowledge that the problem is they're giving the rest of us a bad name. And it's really, 
it bothers me deeply that these kinds of people are out there practicing. And I know that they are. So it is very important to me to acknowledge that. Yeah, I, I, this is why your endometriosis didn't get diagnosed because you were told to just relax and have a glass of wine or it's all in your head. And this all goes to the patriarchal issue of more often than not, when women and people with uterus present with a complaint, they're more likely to be diagnosed with like a psychiatric thing or, you know, not have their pain treated with an actual medical diagnosis. They're just told to like, go relax. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge these things and to allow people to have these stories because their story is real. And what I try to do is I say, I try to empower them and say, you know, you're currently seeing this doctor who's blowing you off. It is, you are, it is well within your rights to walk away and get another opinion or to say, this is not real. And I'm trying to empower people to feel that if they run into that kind of doctor or midwife or whoever, that to know that that's not how it has to be and know that I'm actively trying to work <laughs> on, you know, trying to, when these things pop up, I mean, I, I have no problems reporting people and saying, here's what was said. Here's what was done. This is not okay. Um, but it, it does, it bothers me. And in our field, especially, I feel like it's, there's these power disputes, there's these power balances, mismatches, um, especially when it comes to people who are in historically marginalized groups, either by race, um, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status, it's hard. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge those stories, not blow them off, and also say, well, here's what next time what we could do, or here's how I'm working. Um, and I also acknowledge that they shouldn't have to deal with this. They shouldn't have to feel like they have to speak up. I hate it. I, I do. And I wish that when it came to coming, you know, your medical school admissions, can we get rid of the physics? Can we get rid of the organic chemistry requirements? And can we just make sure people aren't jerks? And can we make sure that they can communicate? Because you can learn all the science. It's not hard. Medicine's actually not that hard when it comes to the science, but it's being able to see people, listen to them, understand, think, and not blow people off, especially with highly charged issues. That's the kind of person I want. And it breaks my heart when people say, oh, Dr. Lincoln, you're just you're just so nice. And I'm like, I'm just a human. Like, like, I don't think I'm really not trying to be like, I'm so great. I'm not, I just listen to people. And I think that we need more of that. And there are a lot of us out there, I promise you. Um, but it's just like a few bad seeds, you know, they spoil the bunch, unfortunately. I just read this part in your book, you had an excellent like recommendation. So no one teaches us as patients like how to really be advocates for ourselves and what kind of power we have in the relationship. It it often feels, like you said, kind of mismatched, kind of imbalanced, because I'm not the expert, except I am, right? I'm the expert in my own body. But um, I know that in your book, you had a really excellent sort of path of next steps. If you feel like you're not being heard, here's what you do. Can you tell me if I if I felt that way in a relationship with a doctor, um, what do I do next? How do I handle it? Yeah. So let's say you, you know, you're going in for painful sex and you feel like you, you're not really being heard. It was brushed off. I think it's totally legitimate to say that very clear. I don't know if you're hearing me or let me, let me explain again how this is affecting my life. Or, you know, I don't think that's going to work if they say like, just get more sleep, you know, or something like that. Um, or you know, things like that. And then you can see what the response is and you can very clearly see if you're going to get somewhere or you're not. Because again, I'm not perfect. And I've also had patients who've said to me, you know, Dr. Lincoln, I, I know that you think that this is from constipation, but I, I really don't think that it is. And I'm, you know, I go, oh, 
okay, let's, let me, let's recalibrate here. Let's, let's try if this, then that, and if that doesn't work, then we'll do this. Let's get a roadmap going. Um, Cause I'm not perfect either. But if you get somebody who's like, yeah, you know, I think it's just in your head, then, you know, okay, let's not waste any more time. But it's also totally appropriate to then say, you know, I'd like to talk to someone else and, and where I tell people to kind of level up. So you've always got somebody you can go to, whether it's a patient advocate in the hospital, the practice manager, um, those are good places to start. And sometimes you get somewhere and sometimes you don't, because let's be real, sometimes practices can be toxic and the practice manager is best friends with the physician and you're not going to get anywhere. Um, and if you feel that you've really been ignored or harmed, then you can go, you can level up to the state medical board, um, the, you know, whatever field they're in the American board of OBGYN and not to be like, I'm telling people you need to tell on everybody and everybody needs to lose their license. That's not what I'm saying, but sometimes there are real harms that have happened and it's okay to do that. Um, and I think that sooner rather than later, like don't waste a whole lot of your time and try to make a relationship that's not working work. It's absolutely okay to transfer, whether it's in the practice or somewhere else. And just this week, I had somebody in my DMs who was saying, this doctor operated on me. I don't think she likes me. I wrote a letter to her telling her how I feel like I was hurt by her. And her partner contacted me and said that I hurt the doctor's feelings. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, you need to like, I said, this is like, you, you have gone above and beyond. You expressed yourself. Like, this is not a friendship. You're not married to her. You need to go somewhere else because the way this is being handled is, is shenanigans. And she's like, yeah, I just, I feel like I want to make it right. I said, no, no, this is not your best friend. This is a relationship that has ceased to be useful for either of you and, and go somewhere else. And good for you for trying to speak up and make it right. But clearly it's not going to happen that way. Um, yeah. I honestly appreciate that so much because I know when I was younger and felt less empowered, I definitely suffered through years of a not great, you know, doctor patient relationship. And I wish, I, I hope that anyone listening knows that it's okay to try something else, <laughs> move on if it's really. And, I, and even me as a physician, as somebody like I've also had those experiences and I, you know, had an experience with a physician a few years ago where I was completely disrespected and I, I let them know and not them directly because I didn't feel comfortable with that. And that's okay. But yet I'm a physician, right? And you're like, you should always want to speak up. Sometimes we don't, but I let the person who needed to know, know, and I never went back and I felt really good about it. But even me as somebody who's feeling very empowered and, and in that field, even for me, it was a bit hard. So I get that it's not always so straightforward. This is a bit of a pivot, but so in addition to really valuing your expertise um, on social media, I also love when you dunk on myths. Um, I just love seeing myths be dunked on. It's truly one of the few pandemic joys that remain for me, I feel. And I am kind of, I, I want to know, like, what are some of the most just ridiculous out there, like your top three nonsense TikTok myths that you've seen and spent time debunking? Yeah. So much of it is related to birth control. So I, you know, I see this all the time where they say, did you know that um, birth control is a class one carcinogen? And meaning that, you know, it's recognized by the World Health Organization to, to cause cancer. And people will make TikToks about this and they love to like unfold, you know, the, the insert, the package insert. And they're like, do you think this is normal? And your doctors aren't telling you. And I love to write or, you know, respond back. And I'm like other things that are also a class one carcinogen, the sun, alcohol, you know, basically anything. And it's the dose makes the poison. And 
it's also, did, did you also know that birth control decreases your risk of uterine cancer and ovarian cancer? And so I made a whole side effect series about, you know, let's, let's stop saying these ridiculous things and let's actually give some balanced information here. And let's talk about the numbers and break it down, which isn't as sexy as birth control will kill you. Um, so that one, that one pops up all the time. Um, the other ones that I've seen, um, you know, a, a lot are related to, oh, birth control will make you pick the wrong partner. Did you know that, that because you're on birth? Yes, yes, exactly. Um, because they love to quote this one study, this very tiny study where they had people who were on birth control and who weren't, and they smelled shirts. And, and basically the long and the short of it was that they found their partners more attractive when they weren't on birth control or something ridiculous like that. So, you know, real good Cochrane review, randomized controlled trial level stuff here. Um, but again, it's in this theme of like, they didn't tell you and birth control is killing you. And like, you know, what actually kills people? Childbirth is one of the most dangerous things we do. And, but that's a topic for another day. Um, and then just this idea, again, related to birth control, um, that did you know that the period you have on birth control isn't a real period and birth control is masking your symptoms and blah, blah, blah. And um, to which I say, you know, okay, so if birth control is a band-aid, so is insulin, so is Viagra, so is ibuprofen, like, come on now, you know, so it, so are SSRIs. So can we stop saying that this medicine is a band-aid when people are using it to treat, you know, bleeding disorders or debilitating pain from periods or suicidal ideation related to premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, or, you know, preventing uterine cancer and people with PCOS who are anovulatory. So do you, and, and a lot of these, again, they come from the fact that I readily acknowledge that birth control's history of how it was developed was racist and preyed on people hundred thousand, ten percent We can acknowledge that history and we can also not use that as a reason to misinform people moving forward. And I can readily acknowledge that in our 15 minute appointments, do we go over every little side effect? No, but we should be going over the big ones and we should have that open communication of, Hey, if you think that something's not working for you, let me know. And not blowing people off when they're like, you know, I just feel moodier in my birth control. And cause I know that happens. Um, but it, it's just this idea that this like sensationalism of things like, like we're trying to hide something from you. Um, that really bothers me again, understanding where it came from, but moving forward, pretending that you are like, like we're, we're purposely keeping women down because we want to, we want them to be harmed or hurt, um, is inauthentic and actually hurts people more truly. I feel like I saw that one pretty recently, like, uh, tweet and the, the magic of the internet is that anyone can say anything and it can take off as much as it pleases. Um, that was, you know, just, just kind of a, just asking questions tone of, you know, isn't it weird that this whole generation of, um, young women was prescribed birth control. We're coming off of it and we're finding out we have, you know, PCOS. And so it never said, Oh, birth control is causing it, but it sort of like planted that little seed, that little. Yeah. Hmm. And it went viral. And this person, because I know exactly what you're talking about, happens to be um, transphobic, happens to be a conspiracy theorist when it comes to COVID, happens to have no medical training. Um, but this is what goes viral. Yeah. So I'm giving a talk at ACOG on social media in May, and um, she will be featured there <laughs> as an example of here's somebody who has no training whatsoever, but because of the magic of the internet, went viral. And because of her, probably a bunch of people will stop their birth control and have an unintended pregnancy or maybe go on to develop cancer of the uterus or be harmed in a different way. Will she ever be held accountable? Absolutely not. 
must be nice. <laughs> yeah. Consequence-free words. Yeah. Yeah. Because things like that can just blow up so easily, and not all of us have the benefit of um, years in medical school, years as a practicing physician, how do we non-medical folks, folks like me, um, you know, look at the health information we're seeing online with a more critical eye? Like, what are the hallmarks to look for that suggest something might be a little fishy, um, that it might need a deeper look than... I love that question. And I feel like every few months I review this on my social media, because I think it's so important that you're empowered to understand it yourself. There can't, can't always be somebody responding or, you know, there's so much stuff out there. So I tell people to be really critical. So the first thing is, is this person an expert, you know, and I'm not saying an expert like Dr. Oz, but like an actual expert. And are they an expert in the field and, and the topic on which they are communicating about? That helps to narrow things down a lot. So you can see, does this person have actual training? And no, being a, a menstrual cycle hormone nutritionist does not count. Or being a chiropractor does not mean that you're an expert in periods. It means you're an expert in other things. So are they an expert? Are they an expert in their field? Does it sound too good to be true? Because almost always, if something is saying something always works or something never works, it's usually false <laughs> in both regards. So does it sound too sensational? Are there references? And I think this is one that can be really empowering because if you're not sure and you ask somebody for the references, if their answer is do your own research, mm, that's that's not okay. Or then if you get if you get references, are they legitimate? And this can be really hard, even for somebody like me who's in medicine. Sometimes it can be hard to understand the statistics and whether a study is good or not because I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a statistician. Um, and so I try to lean on other experts to, to see, you know, if I'm not sure, I even ask them and be like, hey, does this study look good? So it can be hard. Um, but I think when you start with those, that can be really helpful. Oh, the other one is, are they profiting off of their claim? Are they trying to sell you something? So you could say to me, well, Dr. Jen, you're putting out this stuff and you're trying to sell a book. Absolutely. And so feel free to always look at my references. Feel free to even use these sorts of things with the content I put out. And hopefully you'll see that I'm, you know, I'm not here trying to sell a supplement or whatever, or, you know, you can get my book from the library. I really don't care. Um, but I'm not selling, you know, supplements to you to like Jolene Brighton in her book. Um, what's their, what's their motivation? What's their game? And anybody who's trying to sell you a supplement or a detox program or something like that, um, you can just automatically, you can just stop there. Um, and then if you see these things empower to be empowered, it's really hard. Even when you know this, if it's being served to you in front of you. Um, your subconscious still believes it. So reporting misinformation, I think that's huge. You can do that on all your platforms. You might feel like you're, you know, for a lack of a better term, pissing in the wind, that you're just one voice, but the more people who do it, the better, the better off it gets. Blocking these people because just to not see them takes them off of your off of what you're seeing and being served. And that's really helpful. Obviously, unfollowing them. And then not interacting with the post, which I'm not perfect at either. But every time you write a comment or you, this isn't true, this is false, like you are increasing the interaction with it and you're moving it up the algorithm. So I'm not perfect at that either because sometimes it's so egregious. And I'm like, this is insanity. But doing those sorts of things can be helpful to try to help these platforms hold themselves more accountable. But I, you know, I use TikTok. I use all these platforms. I have people, I have contacts at all of these, you know, all of these platforms. And I can tell you, I, they can all be doing a much better job and they need to. Absolutely. Um, 
So as we're kind of wrapping up, what are your recommended sources? Um, are there places where, you know, I've seen a, let's say I've seen something that's calling itself a study. <laughs> um, where can I go? Is there a recommended place for me to go for sexual and reproductive health information that's trustworthy, that's solid, that's accessible to me? I think it's really great to stick with reputable sources. So when it comes to, let's say, pregnancy, you know, obviously ACOG and SMFM, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, um, ACOG has really great patient-facing website, uh, patient-facing information, including for things like uh, pelvic pain, sexual pain, those kinds of things. They just redid their website. And I think that that can be a really good place to go. And then um, for birth control, I really love bedsider.org because it's just graphically beautiful, but also their information is great. They're frequently asked questions. Like you could just go down the rabbit hole of that. Um, and it's all, you know, written by experts, referenced, that kind of thing. Um, there are societies of sexual medicine, um, the ISSM, which I'm blanking on what that stands for right now. Maybe it's the International Society of Sexual Medicine. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, national organizations like that, they can be really helpful. Um, ASRM, so the Society of Reproductive Medicine, especially in times of COVID and vaccines and fertility is like, that's where I send people. I'm like, go here. This is where you want to get the actual information from experts who understand that the COVID vaccine does not cause infertility. So starting there can be super helpful. I know for me, when I'm looking up studies, I'm looking for real journals, not these throwaway journals. I'm looking for Cochrane's or randomized control trials, um, those kinds of things, which the everyday user might be like, I don't know what that is. But um, the long and the short of it is that if it's, you know, you're finding one tiny itty bitty article in a journal nobody's ever heard of and it's not peer reviewed, then more than likely it's not good science. And if you're not sure, it's okay to ask. I tell people all the time, like, it's okay to print out an article and bring it in to your healthcare provider and be like, is this legit? Should I, you know, what should I do about this? And if your provider is worth their weight and salt, they'll be like, oh, let's look at this, you know, as opposed to tossing it out and being like, what, you don't trust me? That's red flag. Time to move on. Dr. Lincoln, thank you so much for being with me today. This was truly one of the most exciting parts of my year so far. Um, I appreciate your time so much. Thanks for joining us on the Women's HealthCast. Oh, thanks, Jacqueline. This was super fun. We could talk about this stuff all day long, for sure. <laughs> I really could. <laughs> thank you. Have you ever felt during a clinic or a doctor's visit that your questions or concerns weren't being addressed? How many of us really know what to do in that situation? On the next episode of the Women's Health Cast, UW Department of OBGYN Outreach Specialist Cheryl Casey Grant will walk us through how to be an effective self-advocate in medical settings. The Women's Health Cast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's Health Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing, rate and review us in your podcast app, and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening.